0: The Kissel boys were born and raised in what we used to think of as the quintessential American family, like something you'd watch on some wholesome sitcom. They were as competitive as they were ambitious, and those qualities would take both brothers on their very own unique successful journeys in life. But the younger of the two, Robert, he always seemed to have a bit of an edge on older brother Andrew. He was taller, more athletic, more popular, more social, friendlier, Things just simply came easier. Robert was the brother who followed the rules. He maneuvered wisely, cautiously, thoughtfully. Andrew preferred the quick and easy, the fastest way to winning, even if it wasn't exactly the right way. It didn't matter because getting to the finish line first was the only thing that mattered. The irony is the manner in which both of these brothers would come to meet an equally tragic end three years, and thousands of miles apart in ways and for reasons that to this day remain mysterious and nearly impossible to reconcile. This is a special vacation series presentation of California Dreaming, The Tale of the Kissel Family Curse. Hello and welcome back to this multi-part series entitled The Tale of the Kissel Family Curse. This is a vacation series. The story takes place in the northeastern part of the United States and also in Hong Kong. This case was recommended by listener Nate B, who also sent me a book about this case entitled "A Family Cursed" by Kevin McMurray, which I have been referencing throughout. This is the sixth and final part of this series, so we'll be able to move on to another story after this, finally. So if you've been waiting to binge, your time has come. If you haven't listened to parts 1 through 5, pause this here. And listen to all of those first, and then come back to this. And by the way, today is Sunday, June 27th. It is the fourth anniversary of California Dreaming. So, hooray for us. All right. Last time, we went through the rapid deterioration of Andrew Kistel's personal life and professional life. He had no job, no money, no friends. He was losing his wife, his kids, his home. And he was headed to jail to boot. We left off with Andrew coming under federal indictment for a laundry list of financial crimes. And now we're going to pick up the story with a new central character in this whole mess. So let's get going. Okay, so now I'm going to introduce another person related to the story named Carlos Trujillo. Originally from Colombia, South America, he immigrated to the United States in early 1998. He ended up in the Bronx, where his brother George had already been living for some time. By trade, Carlos was a truck driver, but his future in Colombia was bleak. So he came to the United States for better opportunities in order to take care of his family. Even though the door was always open for him to be involved in the lucrative drug trade, that his native country is typically best known for. The lure of easy money wasn't worth losing the chance to work in the United States. So he decided early on that he was going to stay away from it all. So Carlos's brother George had been employed by an older wealthy woman in Manhattan. He was her handyman and her personal driver. She also had a housekeeper who was from Colombia as well. By 2000, it appeared as though this woman was no longer going to be needing George's services, so the housekeeper offered to help. She told him that she was also a housekeeper for another family and they might need a driver slash handyman themselves. She'd check with them and see. That family was Andrew and Haley Kissel's family. Luckily for George, the housekeeper was right. Andrew Kissel was in need of a personal driver, so that spring of 2000, George was hired. After some time, Andrew came to appreciate George's hard work and his trustworthiness and reliability, so he wanted him in a role where he'd have some more responsibilities to take some of the load off of Andrew. There were a number of properties that Andrew owned over in New Jersey, so he made George the manager of those properties. Not only that, George was able to put in a good word for his brother Carlos as a possible replacement driver, so Andrew hired him to fill that position. Now, both brothers were employees of Andrew Kissel. For a salary of $550 per week, Carlos was tasked with picking up the Kissel children from school. He was given the freedom to use the family's GMC Denali, and he would be able to maintain possession of the car so he would be able to commute from his home to work and back every day. Andrew also gave him a credit card for any expenses related to getting the kids, gas, food, or whatever. He could dress comfortably. He didn't have to wear any kind of weird chauffeur outfit, but the only condition was is that he couldn't wear denim. In addition to that, Andrew offered to pay for Carlos to attend college at night so he'd be able to learn how to speak English. It wasn't uncommon for immigrant workers to not be treated very well by the people that they work for. Often they're underpaid, they're overworked, but they need the job, so they just have to deal with it and carry on. But Carlos took a liking to Andrew because he was genuinely nice to him and treated him fairly and paid him fairly. However, as Carlos got to know Andrew better, one of the major flaws Andrew had was a fierce temper raising his voice, shouting, hurling things across the room. As for Haley, Carlos described her as being one that cannot be made to wait for anything or anyone, yet ironically, she was constantly late for just about everything, which in turn would cause her to become frustrated and angry, and it was always Carlos who took the brunt of Haley's frustration-fueled outbursts, even going so far as to kicking the back of Carlos's seat as he drove, complaining about how late she was going to be. Carlos's interactions with the Kissels was pretty much confined to the inside of the SUV. There was almost never any reason for Carlos to even try to find a place to park when he dropped any of the Kissels off at their home. Because Carlos was with the Kissels so much, it was inevitable that he was going to be privy to some of the things that were going on with them. That included Andrew's business and financial transgressions. In fact, the way he actually started to realize something was wrong was back when Andrew was caught stealing money from the co-op while he served as treasurer. There was an occasion when Carlos was outside the apartment when one of its residents approached Carlos and began verbally attacking him about him working for a thief. Like, how could you? He also heard rumors from some of the employees who worked for the apartment who were also immigrants, maintenance workers, landscapers, and whatnot. He mostly heard from them about what Andrew was accused of. Andrew moved to Greenwich in 2003. This was amidst the co-op embezzlement scandal into a home that he rented for $14,300 a month while Haley and their two children continued to live in Manhattan. Carlos continued working for the family as a driver for Haley and the kids during this time. And for the most part, it was his impression that Haley didn't really know what was going on with Andrew and him having been accused of stealing the money as treasurer, she was just completely in the dark about it. However, Andrew did keep in close contact with Carlos to make sure Haley stayed that way. He would instruct Carlos to intercept the mail every day before Haley got a chance to get it. If the board of directors left any kind of correspondences on the tenant's door... Carlos would go around to every apartment on their floor that they lived on and collect them all before Haley had a chance to even see them. Haley did not interact with anyone in the building, so it wasn't going to be much of a challenge to hide everything from her. Eventually, Haley and the kids joined Andrew in Greenwich and Carlos stayed working for them. In addition to taking the kids to school and picking them up, Carlos was also tasked with maintaining Andrew's vast collection of cars. He washed them, waxed them, made sure that they were all running smoothly and they all started up. With this change came a change in Carlos's relationship with the Kissels too. Since they weren't in the busy, impacted streets of Manhattan anymore, but rather out in the quiet suburbs, Carlos was often inside the house with the family. And so he was around when Haley caught wind of the trouble that Andrew was in with the co-op, and she went ballistic. This sent the Kissels' marriage into a nosedive that they were never able to pull out of. Whenever Andrew and Haley were in the same room together, the only interaction they had with one another was fighting. Always. The only time the house grew peaceful and Andrew was able to breathe was when Haley left every morning to go to work. During the time that Carlos was working for Andrew, he also became acquainted with Robert Kissel. Carlos would pick him up and drop him off at the airport whenever he flew into town to visit. In a family curse, Carlo is said to have described Robert's personality as being completely different than Andrew's. That Robert was nice, but he didn't talk much while Andrew was pretty loud and outgoing. And to me, dreamers, it kind of sounded like the brothers almost flipped roles since the time that they were kids and teenagers, where Robert was the one who was more fun-loving and outgoing and Andrew was the one who kept to himself most of the time. But then again I thought well this is Robert and this is by 2003 he'd been dealing with Nancy's infidelity for quite some time by then and it was probably taken a big mental and emotional toll on him so he wasn't going to be the same person that he once was. What Carlos was able to tell was that Andrew and Robert's relationship as brothers was good they had a very strong bond. So when Robert was murdered in November of 2003, Andrew's entire personality, his presence, everything about him shifted. There were rarely any moments when Andrew wasn't grieving and filled with sadness over the loss of his brother. He stopped being the outgoing, fun-loving guy that Carlos had once known. However, things did brighten up a little bit for Andrew when he and Haley were granted temporary guardianship over Robert's and Nancy's three children. That seemed to make him happy. Either Andrew was able to cope a little bit better, perhaps it distracted him a bit from the heartbreak of losing his brother, but also all of Robert's estate was put into a trust to take care of the kids, so it kind of eased some of the financial problems that were going on. However, going from two children to five children brought up an entirely new dynamic that the family was apparently ill-prepared for. In a word, I guess it could be described as chaos. The kids bickered a lot, and Andrew couldn't stand it at all. To Carlos, it looked like Andrew was going to lose his mind. Eventually, Andrew just started spending less and less time at home. And eventually he confided in Carlos that he was seeing another woman. So he started to show up for dinner less and less. And oftentimes he would saunter into the house all hours of the night. His behavior only stoked the tension and arguing that had been going on between himself and Haley. By the following summer, Andrew was hit with the federal indictment and he sort of vanished. He went radio silent for about 30 days. Of course, this was going to have an impact on the Kissels' ability to continue to pay Carlos the salary that he had been earning. By then, it was $850 a week. Haley had to break the news to Carlos that she didn't have the money to pay him. The upside of all that is Carlos had been able to save a pretty substantial amount of money from his time working with the Kissels, so he would be okay for a while until he found other work. Eventually, Andrew began coming around again. He sat down and talked with Carlos. He didn't want to let him go completely, but he would be able to pay him here and there for any work that he did have for him. Andrew was confined to house arrest, so he kind of needed Carlos around to help run errands or do whatever he needed in order to continue to hide as much as he could from Haley. And oh, and Carlos was also hiding the fact that Andrew was keeping him on a part-time basis. And Andrew paid him sporadically and in varying amounts, but he continued to be as generous as he could be with Carlos. Eventually, Carlos landed a part-time job, so between that and the money that Andrew was able to pay him, he was doing all right. On the last day of February of 2006, Haley filed for divorce. In her filing, among the plethora of things that she listed against Andrew, she also alleged that he was regularly going through the revolving door of addiction, recovery, and relapse. That he drank and used drugs on the regular. He failed to stop for any substantial amount of time, no matter how many times he went to rehab. That he was combative and antagonistic. And she wrote in her filing that Andrew scammed and deceived her by forging her signature on various financial documents in order to remove her as the owner of her own property in Vermont in order to drain its equity. The fighting between Haley and Andrew raged on at their Greenwich home to a point where they no longer slept in the same room. Haley insisted that Andrew move out into a guest bedroom, but he refused to relinquish control over their master bedroom, so Haley ended up in the guest room. In her divorce filing, she requested that Andrew be forced to vacate the home. Eventually, Haley started spending more time away from the Greenwich house and more time at their Vermont vacation home. And what do you know, when she gets there, she comes to find that the TV in the living room was on the fritz. Who's she going to call? Lance Del Priore. Remember, he's the brother of Mike Del Priore, the man whom Nancy Kissel was having an affair with a man who is believed to have been the catalyst for Robert's murder. Lance was glad to hear from Haley and that she reached out to him. It had been quite some time. They made an appointment for him to come out to the house and fix the TV. After speaking to Haley, Lance touched base with Andrew and the two chatted for a bit, not once bringing up the scandalous affair and murder. Andrew eventually told Lance that, He wanted to get the best, most state-of-the-art big-screen TV on the market to replace the one at the Vermont home. So when Lance made his way over to see Haley, he related to her what Andrew was looking for, and she scoffed and said, yeah, right. Did Andrew mention that he is pretty much broke and penniless? Well, the last time Lance ever spoke to Andrew, aside from discussing the TV Andrew was relaying that he was hopeful that he would be able to navigate his way through the criminal charges with ease and that he would come out the other end relatively unscathed. But Andrew was more pessimistic than optimistic. Lance tried to reassure him, he'll get through this, it's tough, but it won't kill him, it wasn't the end of the world. But Andrew wasn't so sure. And after that conversation... Lance never heard from Andrew Kissel again. There then came a time when Carlos received a phone call from Haley Kissel. At the time, he was still working for Andrew on an as-needed basis. She inquired as to how much Carlo knew in terms of what was going on with the mess that Andrew had caused. He told her that he knew about it. She confided in Carlos that she was no longer able to keep her housekeeper and the housekeeper just wasn't taking care of the house. She helped to take care of the kids, too. So she asked Carlos if he would be interested in working for her again, to help with the house and the kids until they were ready to vacate the premises. She told him that she would be able to give him a salary of $600 a week, with a clear understanding that he was to be working only for her, not Andrew. From the sounds of it, Andrew had pretty much been demoted from man of the house to domestic help too, except he wasn't being paid. In fact, to me, it sounded like he was working to earn his keep there. What do I mean by working? Chores. Any chores that Haley ordered him to do, he had to do. So she told Carlos that whenever he did any laborious work around the house, like gardening or repairs or whatever, that Andrew would... I guess, technically, be working for Carlos. Andrew was to assist him as needed. I'm sure Carlos quietly giggled to himself, knowing that he had never seen Andrew Kissel so much as even pick up a hammer. And he wasn't wrong. Andrew was absolutely no help around the house at all. In fact, he offered to slip Carlos some money on the side if he would just complete all the tours himself. It was fine by Carlos, never one to turn down money, and he never deluded himself into thinking that Andrew would actually help him anyway. So while Andrew was relegated to home confinement, he was still able to do a few mundane things like go to the store or go to doctor's appointments. He could also go to the school where his kids attended if need be, but all of that was restricted to Monday through Friday. Saturdays and Sundays, he was not allowed to leave the home. For a man who had a large, eclectic circle of friends, nobody ever dropped in to see him. After Andrew came under indictment, he was like a pariah. Whenever questioned by the media, anyone who had once been friends with Andrew insisted that they merely sort of knew him in passing. They didn't know him, know him. More like they knew of him. And it was all in an effort to distance themselves from Andrew. And if anyone was still dealing with him, it was most likely because they were suing him. His wife was filing for divorce. His business partner, David Prazier, was suing him. And everyone else that he screwed out of money could just go ahead and get in line. And because of the situation that Andrew has found himself in, His relationship with Carlos became even more important to him. Andrew wasn't able to go out anymore. He couldn't see anybody, and really nobody wanted to see him. Even his closest friends ghosted him. Andrew loved being around people, but now all his people were gone. Carlos kind of filled that void for him. Andrew started opening up to Carlos, taking stock of his life. Wondering why he decided lying, cheating, and stealing was the way to go. And for Andrew, nobody was off limits when it came to his scams. He duped his friends, he duped his family, even his own dad, and his brother, who he loved and cared for so much. Robert had invested in Andrew's businesses too. And since none of it was above board, that is what it amounted to. He swindled his own flesh and blood. As Andrew sat there, pondering his reasons or his excuses, all he could come up with is how much of a rush he got out of getting his hands on so much money. Money that he would be able to get anything and everything that his heart desired. A collection of cars, homes, a yacht, women. But now, the most expensive thing that Andrew had anymore was an ankle monitor. The book said that Carlos started feeling sorry for Andrew which is kind of funny when you think about it because Carlos was the one that came from nothing. He came to New York for opportunities to earn money to take care of his family. And he worked for years, six, sometimes seven days a week. He worked hard, he lived modestly, and in the end, he was going to be comfortable in knowing that he did what he needed to do for his family. Carlos also described Andrew as being distraught over the pending divorce from Haley. But for me, because Andrew was such an asshole, because he lied and cheated and he failed when it came to taking care of his family, all I have to say about that is boo-hoo. Andrew no longer had any source of income, and all of his accounts were frozen by federal investigators. So it was time to start unloading his prized worldly possessions. He sold his 80-foot Lazara yacht for $2.8 million dollars. Among the cars that he collected, he sold one of the original Pontiac Transams that had been used in the 1980s television series Knight Rider, starring David Hasselhoff. And if you're familiar with the show, you know he has that black car named Kit. It sold on eBay for $20,000. He also sold off a 1957 Mercedes-Benz for $420,000. Andrew also sold off his share ownership of the private jet, So with all of the big items gone, Andrew next turned to his jewelry collection. Carlos was going to help him sell the items to a jeweler in Greenwich. Andrew would not be able to take the payment from the jeweler because of his mounting financial problems. So Carlos was sent to handle the transaction and to have a check issued to him instead. And he was given explicit instructions. Haley cannot know about this. Andrew insisted to Carlos that all of the jewelry pieces were his. None of them belonged to Haley. However, one of them didn't belong to Andrew. It actually belonged to Andrew's father. It was a gift given to him by his mother. Dad gave it to Andrew and requested that Robert's youngest son, when he gets older, he wanted him to have it. Now, when Andrew found himself entangled in all of these legal troubles, one of the first things that William Kissel became concerned with was that watch. He didn't want it to be seized, so he attempted to contact Andrew to get it back from him. But he was unable to reach Andrew, getting Haley on the phone instead. He explained what the watch meant to him and that he wanted to get it back from Andrew. And all Haley told him was that the watch meant a lot to Andrew also. William was not able to get it back. Carlos was a bit apprehensive about getting involved like this, so he says, but he didn't want to let Andrew down in his time of need, since Andrew had been there for him when he needed work. All of the watches that Carlos brought to the jeweler, none of them netted less than $5,000. After spring break in March of 2006, Carlos had returned from a week off to visit his family in Columbia. When he came back to work for Haley, she let him know that they were no longer going to do any work around the house that they had to move. The last time Andrew paid rent for that home was back in September of 2005, and they were being evicted. Haley let the owner of the home know that they would be packed up and moved out by April 1st. So all everyone did, Haley, Andrew, Carlos, the kids, if they could help, all they did was pack up everything in the boxes and got ready to go. As it were, two days before they were supposed to be out on March 29th, it just so happened to be Haley's birthday. On that day, a package arrived at the home addressed to Haley, and it was from a man that Haley had been seeing. Andrew was hurt, and he griped to Carlos that Haley probably did that on purpose, having her new man send gifts to their house just to pour salt into his wounds. But again, to me, I don't really have any sympathy for Andrew in this situation because it wasn't like he was faithful or devoted to Haley either. In fact, on the weekends when Haley wasn't around, Andrew hired paid escorts to come to the house, several of them at a time, and he'd throw sex and drug-fueled parties. Yet he's all distressed about Haley's new love interest. Please. Now, here we're going to follow the timeline closely because things for this branch of the Kissel family, everything had been going bad. As it was, it's about to get even worse, I guess, depending on whose side you're on. So on the final day of March 2006, the soon to be ex Mrs. Kissel hired a moving company to get the last of her belongings out of the house the following day, which was April 1st, the day that the family was ordered to be out by. Most of her things were already in storage since this thing had been so last minute and hasty Haley hadn't settled on a new place for herself and the kids. And as for Andrew, it didn't much matter because he was about to be sentenced to some jail time. And it looked like he was going to face quite a number of years, so he didn't need to look for a place to land. The state of Connecticut had a cell waiting for him. Saturday, April 1st was to be the last day in the home. They needed to be out, so Carlos got there in the morning to help Haley and Andrew along with the moving company to get all of their stuff out and loaded, a task that pretty much took all day and a total of three trucks were needed to pack everything up. And just as they were about to finish loading up the last of the furniture from the master bedroom, Andrew put a stop to the moving and insisted that the bedroom set stay because he intended to remain there in the home until Monday. He had no other accommodations. This quickly escalated into a shouting match between Haley and Andrew in front of the work crew that they had hired, making things even more awkward. The fact is, this moving company and their workers, they expected to be finished with the Kissels on that Saturday. But Andrew told them to just come back on Monday and pick up the last of the bedroom furniture then, which was very, very inconvenient for the movers because now they were going to be tied up for another day with these people when they had plenty more work that had to be done. They were annoyed But not surprised, people with a lot of money can act like this sometimes. Another one of the things that the Kissels had a heated argument over was a hidden stash of money that Haley found while they were packing. It was about $18,000. It was money that Andrew had received from selling off some of his expensive watch collection. But he didn't tell Haley that. He didn't want her to know that he had sold off all those things. He explained that he had been slowly squirreling it away for a rainy day over several months, but she knew Andrew was lying. In fact, she was certain that he had stolen the money from her. But he insisted that he'd been saving it little by little, and he actually forgot where he had put it because of his excessive drinking that had clouded his memory. Haley didn't believe a word that came out of Andrew's mouth, As to what they ended up doing with the $18,000, not sure. I don't think the Greenwich investigators on this case ever found out. By the late afternoon of Saturday, April 1st, 2006, the packing was done, and it was time for the Kissel children to say goodbye to their dad. The kids had a hard time with it. There were lots of tears. Andrew looked on as Haley and his children pulled out of the driveway and drove off. The next day, Carlos came back to the house to retrieve a few more items that Haley wanted and he visited with Andrew for a little bit. Andrew was using his last few hours of freedom partying with some unnamed woman and cocaine. Over the time Carlos knew the Kissels, it had been abundantly clear that Andrew used cocaine on a daily basis. After Carlos was done checking in on Andrew, he went home. The next day, Monday, April 3rd, Carlos went to Haley's friend's house where she and the kids had been staying occasionally while they transitioned into a new home. Haley's dog was still there and she asked Carlos if he could go by and pick up her dog and take it over to her mother's house instead, which he did. Also on this day, Monday, it was time for Andrew to vacate the nearly empty house. The moving company and workers were to arrive around eight in the morning, which they did. But when they tried to access the property, they found that the front gate was still locked. They couldn't open it to drive up to the main property. So they waited around for a little while. They tried honking their horn a few times, but nobody emerged from the home to let them in. So they checked in with the main office, the moving company's main office, to try and figure out what to do next. The office employee got in touch with Haley who provided them with the code so they could enter it into the keypad that would automatically open the gates once they were in they drove up to the front and rang the doorbell they still got no answer from anyone growing annoyed and impatient one of the movers tried the door and it opened so they stepped inside and indicated verbally that they were there to finish up the move still no answer no sign of anyone in the house So they went ahead and began taking apart the master bedroom set in order to bring it down into the truck. Once they were just about finished, one of the movers did one final sweep of the house to make sure nothing was left behind. And when he made his way down into the basement, that is when they figured out why nobody had let them in. The only person still living at the home at the time was Andrew. And he was down in the basement, not living. He was dead. According to A Family Cursed, Andrew was pretty much in the middle of the basement, seated in a chair, slumping forward in a pool of dark, semi-dried blood. Andrew's hands had been tied behind his back, bound with zip-tie flex cuffs. Each one of Andrew's legs was bound to a leg of the chair that he was sitting on. He was gagged, and he had a blood-stained t-shirt yanked over his head. Greenwich police descended on the home. Things like this hardly ever happened in this neighborhood. Neighbors began gathering to try and get a glimpse of what was going on. Some of them leashed up their dogs as an excuse to go outside. And amidst all the chaos of law enforcement buzzing around the home, a process server had shown up with the official eviction paperwork that the homeowners had drawn up for the Kissels. In the meantime, Carlos was fixing to meet up with Haley's mom, Eileen, to pass the dog on to her. By now, this was the early afternoon of Monday, April 3rd. But when they met, she explained to Carlos that they had to switch plans at the last minute. She asked him to take Haley's dog up to her home in Vermont, that her dog would be there too, and she wanted him to dog sit both of them until they figured out what they were going to do next because she had to go to Connecticut immediately. Carlos questioned her as to why she needed to go so urgently. And that is when she told him that Andrew was no longer alive. Carlos was said to have been completely stunned and began shedding tears, trying to process this news. He had just seen Andrew the day before. He asked Eileen what happened and she told him that Andrew took his own life. He found that hard to believe because he thought Andrew seemed to be doing okay. Personally, Dreamers, I disagree with that assessment completely. Nothing in Andrew's life was going right, and he struck me as being someone who could very well be suicidal. Haley's mom, Eileen, wanted Carlos to stay at her house in Vermont to take care of the dogs, but he didn't want to do that. He had been working for the Kessels for so long, he said he considered them to be like family, and he wanted to be there to help if needed. He eventually convinced Eileen to let him drive back down there with the dogs so that he could lend his support, She agreed. Carlos packed up the dogs and some items that Eileen wanted him to bring from her home. And he began making the drive back down to Connecticut. As he was driving, Carlos did receive a call from investigators from the Greenwich Police Department. They wanted him to come down to the station and answer some questions. He told them that he would be able to be there the following morning. And according to Carlos, this would be the first of many missteps that he would make. Remember, for all the time that Carlos has been in the United States, he took particular care to make sure that he stayed out of trouble. He had just received his permanent resident card a couple months earlier. He did not want to be sent back to Colombia. He got in touch with his brother George and asked his advice as to what to do about the situation that he was in. The police wanted to interview him and he was nervous about it. His brother told him to try not to worry. He didn't do anything wrong. And to just be honest. The following day, Tuesday, April 4th, the Greenwich police made their first public statement about Andrew Kissel. What they were hoping to do was to calm the residents' fear that there was a killer lurking among them. The Greenwich police chief made it clear that Andrew was targeted. This was not a random act of violence or a burglary gone wrong. Andrew was definitely sought out specifically. Word had gotten around that Andrew was shot to death, but this wasn't true. The chief told the media that he had actually been stabbed. I'm not really sure why he would disclose that information, because those are things that police normally keep close to the vest. But I guess this particular police department doesn't deal with a lot of murders, so that might be a reason. The chief didn't know it at the time to tell the media, but once Andrew was autopsied, he was found to have been stabbed a total of five times in the neck and back. Based on the last time anyone saw Andrew, there was about a 17-hour time frame that they were looking at that this murder took place. The FBI was also brought in on the murder case since they had him under investigation, too. When asked by a reporter about Haley possibly being a person of interest, the chief didn't give a clear answer. All he was willing to say is that they've spoken to her, she's been cooperative, and she's made herself available if they need to talk to her more. Carlos made his way down to the Greenwich police station as they had asked him to, and he voluntarily sat down with them to answer their questions. He did not have an attorney, nor did he ask for one, which would have brought an immediate halt to the questioning. No, he sat down with police on his own and answered their questions. They mostly wanted to get an idea of what Carlos's timeline was in the week or so leading up to Andrew's murder. They wanted him to carefully go through his movements, which he did. And Carlos was under the impression that he was providing satisfactory answers. Eventually, they sent him home, but four days later, on Friday, April 7th, one of the detectives investigating Andrew's murder contacted Carlos again asking if he would come in for more questioning, which he did, again, without an attorney. But this time around, the manner in which Carlos was being asked questions, the entire vibe of the room had significantly changed from the first interview. They were asking a lot more of the same questions they had in the first interview. But this time, the detectives were a bit more abrasive, not as calm as they were before. When this round of questioning was finished, they requested that Carlos come back in another few days or so to have his fingerprints taken. He agreed to that as well. They told him that they found a bunch of fingerprints all around the house and they wanted to clear him of having any involvement in this. The following Wednesday, Carlos headed back to the Greenwich Police Station to have his fingerprints taken, but they actually wanted to do more than that. And I kind of figured that to be the case because... If they were only going to take fingerprints, they could have gotten those the last time that Carlos was there. No, they had much more planned. I just don't think the detectives were quite ready the last time that Carlos was there because they were going to take DNA samples. They were going to have him remove all of his clothing and be photographed for any kinds of injuries. They were going to administer a polygraph test. So they had mentioned to Carlos on his previous visit that he was one of their prime suspects, but he was. And during this visit, that's when the gloves came off. They began hurling accusations at Carlos, accusations that he was responsible for Andrew's murder. In fact, they even came up with their very own scenario as to how they think Carlos did it. If you recall, Carlos had worked out a plan to visit his family in Colombia during spring break. That was a time that worked out well for the Kissels' schedule, too. He had gone down there for a week and then he returned. It was shortly after his return that Andrew asked Carlos if he would go and sell his watches and have the jeweler make the check out to him instead of Andrew because Andrew would not be able to cash it because of his assets being frozen. Carlos was skeptical and he didn't want to do it, but he did. So when investigators started looking at Carlos's recent travels and the money flowing through his bank account, they began putting it together. Carlos had gone down to Colombia to hire a paid hitman to murder Andrew for Andrew. That Andrew gave Carlos the $18,000 and he was paying Carlos to find a hitman to kill him. This is like the suicide by hitman. Carlos was adamant that they had it all wrong. He had turned that money over to Andrew and he, it was nuts to insinuate that he had gone down to Colombia to look for an assassin. The police kept trying to pressure Carlos, but he remained steadfast. They've got it all wrong. In the end, Carlos was free to go home for the time being. The first thing Carlos did was hire an attorney. Because of Andrew, he knew several of them, and one of them, Lindy Urso, was willing to take his case without Carlos being required to put up a massive retainer up front. Andrew was buried that same Friday, April 7th, next to his brother Robert, who had been laid to rest there less than three years earlier. Over the next 10 days or so, Greenwich police were still attempting to uncover evidence in order to build a case against Carlos for Andrew's murder. Just a couple of days before Andrew was killed, Carlos had rented a storage unit, which police obtained a warrant to search. They were looking for anything incriminating, anything that would link Carlos to the scene of the murder. Why would Carlos be needing a storage unit just a couple of days before Andrew was killed? Carlos explained that in the process of moving, the Kissels had offered him some pieces of furniture if he wanted. He did, but he didn't have any place to put the furniture at the time, so he rented the storage. It was clear to Carlos and his attorney that the Greenwich police were pretty razor-focused on him as a suspect in Andrew's murder, so much so that they feared that they might be overlooking other important evidence or suspects because they had zeroed in on Carlos so early on. So Carlos's attorney thought it would be best in order to keep the police department in check to make sure the murder stayed in the headlines. That way, all eyes would be on the investigation, keeping the police accountable for everything that they did and didn't do. It did seem like Carlos had a pretty good alibi the night that Andrew was killed. He had consistently said that he left Andrew's home in the early afternoon on Sunday, April 2nd, and drove to his own apartment in Queens. His vehicle was equipped with an easy pass and it recorded going through the toll road at the time Carlos's story placed him there. Though it is possible that Carlos had someone else drive the car for him. Carlos Trejo would remain the prime suspect in Andrew's murder for quite some time, even as the case started to grow cold. So for Carlos, life went on and he eventually found a pretty decent job driving a limousine. While Carlos sat at the top of the suspect list, there were other people that were interviewed, including the woman that Andrew had been having an affair with, Allison Statler. She was brought to the attention of the Greenwich officers investigating Andrew's murder by none other than Haley herself. And Haley found out about Allison and who she was through her own private investigator that she hired after she had called Andrew's phone while he was on that party yacht in Florida and a woman answered. While Allison insisted her relationship with Andrew was strictly professional, it was a 2000 article in the New York Post where Allison's ex-husband told the publication that five months after his wife was hired by Andrew, he filed for divorce after discovering the two of them had become romantically involved. And he was clear in that the breakup of his marriage was due to Andrew Kissel. While initially working with investigators, Haley Kissel eventually became increasingly uncooperative. And if it seemed that way to officers, it was likely an attempt to protect herself and her children to avoid saying or doing anything that might be misconstrued as incriminating. Her attorney disagreed with a sentiment insisting that Haley had always been fully cooperative from the start and would continue to be throughout. Meanwhile, other theories as to who may have wanted Andrew Kissel dead also made the rounds. He was facing anywhere from 10 to 20 years in prison with all the charges that he was looking at, and people started thinking that maybe Andrew was not the only one in the fraudulent mortgage scheme. Could there have been more people, and were they in jeopardy of being ratted on by Andrew in order to buy himself a lighter sentence? Then, just about two and a half weeks after Andrew's murder, some emails between Haley Kissel and Andrew's sister, Jane Kissel Clayton, were leaked to the local papers, Remember, Haley and Jane met before at the ski resort and became good friends. Haley was eventually introduced to Jane's brother, Andrew, and they hit it off. The emails were printed in the Greenwich paper as well as in all the New York papers, and they were also printed in the book that I've been reading, Family Cursed. One email was short and sweet. It read, God, I hate your brother, followed by seven or eight exclamation points. Sorry, just had to vent. The follow-up email was a bit longer. Haley wrote, I'm okay. He is just such an awful, awful, pathetic person. I just effing hate him. His I am the king attitude, his value system or lack thereof, his anger, his meanness. I just hate him. He will never be a good, responsible person. He is horrible, just horrible, and I hate his effing guts. Do you know last night in bed I could actually see myself pummeling him to death and just enjoying the sensation of each and every shot and then this morning as I pulled out of the garage to go to spin class all I wanted to do was crash into his two Ferraris. It's like ha ha I'm going to bump into that stupid thing you put in the garage as a little F you. I hate that effer. Haley's attorney brushed off the emails as being nothing more than venting. She had a lot to be angry at. Andrew's dad, William Kissel, he found the emails to be much more troubling, and it wasn't just because all of those things had been written and sent, but just because the subject of those hateful emails actually turned up murdered, he found it troubling. However, to put it all into perspective, these emails were written just after she called Andrew's phone while he was party rocking on a boat in Florida and a woman answered his phone. Over the course of about a year, from 2004 to 2005, Jane Clayton and Haley Kissel not only emailed back and forth, but they also had regular phone conversations. And Jane, likely unbeknownst to Haley, had been taking meticulous notes as to the details of some of those conversations, and it showed a marriage and their professional lives, particularly Andrew's, unraveling. Haley complained that she was constantly overwhelmed with raising five kids, her two and Robert and Nancy's three, while Andrew was entertaining other women, dining out at the most exclusive restaurants, always on the phone with these other women and hardly interested in being involved with his family. She also brought up her suspicions when it came to Andrew's business dealings. She knew something was shady. She wasn't quite sure what it was going on, but she thought it might be a Ponzi scheme. Haley was pretty convinced that she was going to have to have that talk with the children one day. Why Daddy? Why Uncle Andrew? is going to prison for a while. It was also during this time period that Haley told Jane that she planned on filing for divorce from Andrew. There had come a point in time that Haley could no longer sit idly by and watch as Andrew sunk them into financial ruin with his illegal schemes. So she questioned him about his business dealings. He jumped all over her, yelling at her as to what he does is none of her effing business, pay attention to her own work, He doesn't tell her how to be a stock analyst, so don't try to get all up in his business either. Jane also told the media about a voice message she received from Andrew himself where he had become infuriated that she had spoken to the press about his financial misdeeds. He referred to himself as her ex-brother and that she was doing the same exact thing that their father had spent their entire lives doing to them, ruining the entire family. He finished his voicemail by telling his sister that he was going to bury her. And speaking of their father, William Kissel, he was not safe from getting read the riot act by his daughter-in-law either. In one particular message, Haley told him that he was evil and everything he gets he deserves and that he's already gotten that and more. And I'm sure it's a reference to having lost his wife and then his middle son. I don't think it was all that much skin off his nose. He didn't like Haley anyway. He never did. Not only did he refer to Haley as a money-grubbing bitch, but he believed that she had to have known about Andrew's financial crimes. She's not stupid. How could she not know when it was all going on right there under her nose? The last night Haley was in the home that they were getting evicted from, she called William Kissel and left him a voicemail he didn't receive until after he learned of Andrew's murder. In it, she stated, Hi Bill, Haley. I wanted you to know that I moved out of the house last night and Andrew stayed behind. I moved out of the house last night and there is reason to be concerned. He doesn't do something stupid with his life. I just thought I would let you know that. Goodbye. The media attempted to make Haley's messages and voicemails into a thing, but her attorneys countered that by explaining them all away as just warnings that everybody needed to be concerned about what Andrew was getting into next. The only people that could help Andrew anymore were his father and his sister. Nobody else really reached out. Then again, we do know for a fact that Andrew made a habit of keeping his family, particularly his dad, a safe distance away. To keep all of them out of his business. So if police had any sort of suspicion that Haley was in some way involved in Andrew's death, what would have been her motive? Well, it's glaringly obvious that she was quite angry with Andrew and the divorce was shaping up to be pretty acrimonious. But was it a motive to kill Andrew or to have him killed? Looking at what's going on with the couple financially, one might reach the conclusion that money may have been a motive to kill. We all know by now that Andrew had plummeted himself and his family into certain financial ruin with his fraudulent mortgage transactions and embezzling. Haley, of course, makes her own money, but the situation Andrew had put them in would have a profound impact on both of them for a long time to come. She wasn't stupid. She began divorce proceedings right away, knowing that she needed to distance herself from him as much as possible, as fast as she could. But would it have been fast enough? Also, there was the matter of Robert and Nancy's three children. Andrew and Haley had been granted custody of the children And along with that came Robert's multi-million dollar estate to be set up to be used to take care and raise his three kids. When the kids were sent to live with them, Andrew was on the verge of finding himself in a tremendous amount of legal trouble. And it wasn't long before his sister Jane decided to throw her hat into the race in order to fight for sole custody of the kids too. In December of 2005, just four months before Andrew was murdered, Haley and Andrew lost custody of the kids to Jane and they lost the added income that came with them. Once Andrew was killed, Haley made a claim on Andrew's life insurance policies totaling $15 million. It was turning into a years-long battle for Haley, who was fighting to get anything she could out of this, but it would all be for naught. In 2009, Haley Kissel lost her fight for the $15 million insurance payout. According to the Hartford Current the insurance company filed a lawsuit against Haley indicating that they would not be paying out the policy because of the false statements that Andrew made on his life insurance application. Specifically, he did not disclose that he abused drugs, specifically cocaine, nor did he disclose that in the past he had been under the care of a psychiatrist. Because of these false statements on the insurance paperwork, the judge on the case ruled that the insurance company was entitled to rescind the policy on his life. And it's not often that something like this happens in the United States. In fact, Connecticut is one of only a handful of states that will permit an insurance company to refuse a payout resulting from untrue medical information on the application, even if the medical information that was lied about had nothing to do with the policyholder's death. Documents provided to the court revealed that Andrew had a long history of drug abuse and grappled with near crippling psychiatric issues that led him to seek professional help from a variety of doctors over the course of his life. In fact, documents showed that there was a point in time when Andrew was being seen by four different doctors and prescribed five different drugs to treat anxiety, depression, and pain. Andrew had been pretty open about his extensive drug use and his history of mental health struggles with his doctors, according to his medical records. During the court proceedings over the life insurance, the medical history questionnaire was submitted as evidence. When it came to the question as to whether Andrew had currently been on any kind of medication, he marked yes, but only listed multivitamins. On the question where it asked if he sought professional help for any emotional issues or struggles with depression, he marked no. And on the question regarding his family history of medical issues, he answered that his brother Robert was in good health, and that may very well have been true if Robert wasn't dead. Yeah, he didn't even disclose that his brother had been murdered a couple years earlier on his insurance questionnaire. There was very little on Andrew's insurance policy application that was true, with the exception of maybe his first and last name. It wasn't long after Andrew's murder that a rumor was floated, and it was something that the police began taking a serious look at. It was a theory that Andrew orchestrated his own murder in order for his family to collect on his life insurance. An unnamed associate of Andrew's reported to police that they had conversations between the two of them where Andrew talked about ending his own life, but being unable to actually do it himself, so he was going to hire someone to do it for him. And the theory was thought to be plausible considering everything that was going on in Andrew's life at the time of his death. He was looking at a long stretch in federal prison. His family, his wife, his children would be left in financial ruin because of him. And if he could pull this off, then it would be a quick way out of having to go to prison for a long time, and he would be able to have a substantial amount of money left behind for his family to be cared for. And the Greenwich police, they never went to the media and said that that theory was absolutely absurd. No, it had them wondering too. Andrew was a shady guy. They weren't ready to put it past him to do one last shady thing before he exited this world for good. Andrew's mental health struggles were also coming to light as the investigation into his murder went along. He had a laundry list of mental and physical disorders that he was dealing with over a long period of time according to a family cursed. Alcoholism, drug abuse, bipolar disorder, impulse control disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder resulting from Robert's murder, and antisocial personality. The fact that there were no obvious signs that anyone forced their way into the home... When Andrew was killed, bolstered the theory that this was an act committed by somebody that Andrew knew. The home was very secure, so a killer either had to break in somehow or had to be let in. In addition to that, the Greenwich police felt as though the killing had indicators that it was perpetrated by a professional hired hit, particularly because of the plastic flex cuffs that were used to bind Andrew's wrists together and his ankles to the chair. Those items are not available to the general public. At least that's what McMurray's book said. And that may have been the case at the time, but why went on Amazon and you can definitely purchase flex cuffs and you can get them in a variety of bright colors too, if that's your thing. William Kissel, Andrew's father, who I don't put a lot of weight in what he has to say about Andrew because he was purposely kept in the dark about everything most of the time for as long as Andrew could for nearly his entire adult life, But William Kissel scoffed at the notion, describing it as preposterous for one to believe that Andrew would kill himself in this manner, that he would have someone bind him to a chair and stab him in the back and pull his T-shirt over his head. Well, dreamers, honestly, it sounds exactly how a planned suicide by Hitman might actually be carried out. Andrew was restrained in order to ensure that he would not be tempted to fight or fend off a knife attack. And if the person hired to kill him was a friend of his, it makes sense that he would not want to be looking at Andrew in the face, especially if they were good friends. Stabbing him in the back may have been their way of not having to look one another in the eye. And that includes the pulling of the shirt over his head once the killing was done. It is not uncommon for a killer who is close to the victim, a good friend, a family member, a loved one, to want to cover the face of the dead person so they don't have to look at what they've done. William Kissel also believed that Andrew would have known that any insurance payout would have been intercepted by the various debt and collectors that were after Andrew. But the attorney who drafted Robert Kissel's will said that isn't necessarily the case. It all depended on how the insurance policy was laid out. If it was going to go into a trust, then creditors would not be able to touch it. Not everybody believed in the suicide by hitman theory, including one veteran New York police officer named Vernon Geberth, who had more than 400 murder investigations that he's worked on over the course of his career and authored books about homicide investigation as well. For McMurray's book, he was quoted in saying, My gut feeling as a homicide cop is that I don't believe someone would hire someone to tie them up and stab them to death. It's a torturous way to die. It doesn't make any sense. If you have to die for some reason, there are other better methods. If it were me, I'd opt for a bullet to the back of the head. It would appear to be an execution. It's also quick and painless. Now, the officer makes some good, valid points here, but if you hire someone to help you pull off a suicide by hitman for you, I mean, the hired hitman is going to do it the way that he is going to do it, especially once the intended victim is restrained. Using a gun could be too loud, it might draw the attention of neighbors in the otherwise quiet neighborhood. I always suspected that to be the case in the Jodi Arias case when she murdered Travis Alexander. I think stabbing Travis was the initial plan because a gunshot would have been too loud and may have been heard by any number of people who regularly came and went from Travis's home, including a number of roommates that he had. I don't think Arius wanted to use the gun at all but had it just in case and when she started stabbing Travis in the back he reacted very quickly and Arius would have soon lost control of the situation. As Travis made his way down his bedroom hallway in an attempt to escape the knife attack she chased him down and once he collapsed at the end of the hall she delivered the slit to the throat in order to quiet his screams at least that's what I think. I believe Arius had no idea how difficult it was going to be to kill somebody with a knife, particularly in the upper back where it didn't seem like she was going to hit any major organs or arteries. I think Jody assessed the situation, making sure that nobody was inside the home, and then used the gun to deliver the so-called coup de gras, the single bullet to the head. And using a gun could also potentially leave much more evidence behind that could tie a killer to a crime, such as blood or gunshot residue, ballistics, evidence, and a gun can be traced relatively easily and accurately, as opposed to using a knife. Ultimately, if Andrew did pay someone to do this to him, it's essentially out of his hands once he's been restrained to the chair. The killer is there to get the job done, and probably has very little concern as to what might be the best method or what might be fast and painless. He probably just wants to get it over with. Let's not forget the kinds of drugs and medications that Andrew was known to frequently use. He definitely would have been able to lower his inhibitions by snorting some cocaine and ingesting some of his prescription drugs. If I'm remembering correctly, the two men who attempted the North Hollywood Bank of America robbery that resulted in a 44-minute gun battle with police in February of 1997, those two guys took some anti-anxiety prescription medications just before going into the bank. Kurt Cobain had heroin and Valium in his system when he died, so I wouldn't put it past Andrew Kissel at all to have decided to have taken drugs and medications before going forward with the plan. That is, if you believe this was a suicide by hitman situation. Andrew's criminal defense attorney, Philip Russell, also didn't believe that he would commit suicide. He described Andrew as being at peace with the jail sentence that he was facing. And he even further stated that Andrew had a lot to live for. Now, I understand that Andrew and his attorney talked every day, and this attorney would know Andrew better than any of us would. But let's be real... He had a lot to live for? I'm not seeing it. Andrew was in the middle of losing just about everything he had in life. All of the wealth that he had amassed fraudulently. His wife, his kids, his homes. It was just about to lose his freedom. He lost the closest person to him in his life, his brother, violently, and he struggled with PTSD over that. He did not get along with his father. All of his friends and business associates all but ghosted him. The only friends it seemed that Andrew had left were his attorney and his driver, Carlos Trujillo, both of whom are paid to be in his life. Life after prison didn't seem to have a bright outlook for Andrew either. He'd never be able to work in real estate. He'd never be able to get back what he lost. It was bleak. It doesn't sound like Andrew had very much, if anything, at all to live for. Combine that with mental illness and addiction feels like a perfect storm for a person to decide on suicide. For those who lean more towards Andrew being murdered, that wasn't part of a planned suicide plot. They pointed to the fact that Andrew Kissel had swindled countless people out of tens of thousands of dollars. They weren't people who lost millions, but they still lost anywhere between fifteen dollars to $20,000 to Andrew and his various scams. It isn't an earth-shattering amount of money, but could still have been considered a motive nonetheless. Just because the home Andrew was in bore no signs of forced entry really didn't mean anything to those who suspected Andrew was possibly murdered by a disgruntled investor. This was a wealthy, quiet neighborhood where people felt safe inside their homes. It was said that they would often leave their doors open and not turn on their alarm systems. And I don't know if that's true or not. I think society as a whole has long moved past being so complacent When we say things like, oh, it was the kind of place where we'd leave the doors unlocked and we'd leave the car keys in the ignition, this is stuff people used to do in the mid-20th century, like in the 1950s or 60s. Those were more wholesome times. This did not seem to be the general rule by the 2000s, but then again, I'm not a wealthy resident of Greenwich, Connecticut. Maybe they do do things differently. Maybe they did trust or feel immune to the common criminal. And then there was the fact that in the days and weeks leading up to Andrew's murder, he had been having paid escorts come to the home to entertain him while he was on house arrest. Typically, the women who work in the sex trade don't work alone, and they do that for their own safety. Is it possible that one of his hired escorts and whomever she was working in tandem with saw this as an opportunity to rob an unsuspecting, vulnerable Andrew Kissel? Andrew did have a lot of cash on hand from the sale of some of his expensive collections, of course. He paid for her services using cash. Perhaps one of the ladies got an eyeful of how much money Andrew had on him, and they decided to rob him. There is also the fact that Andrew was using a lot of cocaine leading up to his death. So, similar to the paid escort theory, could it have been a drug dealer who was frequently coming to Andrew's house, supplying him with cocaine, and deciding to take the opportunity to rob him and kill him. Either one of those theories is plausible. Then there was the fact that Andrew was only days away from entering a guilty plea to federal fraud charges. The idea was floated by the media that Andrew may have been planning to implicate others in an effort to be given a less harsh sentence, and that perhaps someone watching what Andrew was doing very closely began to feel threatened by the possibility of him being snitched out on by Andrew and decided to silence him before he was able to answer to the charges that he was facing later on that week in court. But Andrew's attorney insisted that his client was on his own in this case. He committed these crimes by himself. And for me, Dreamers, that makes a lot of sense because it seemed like even the people closest to Andrew, his wife, his business partner, it really didn't seem like they had any clue as to what was going on. Or at the very least, they decided to turn a blind eye to it because of all the money he was making. It's been said several times that Andrew didn't trust anyone, which I found amusing considering Andrew was the one who was the most crooked. So for those who believe Andrew was murdered in a plot that Andrew did not plan out himself, the general theory is that either one of the individuals working with the sex workers Andrew had hired or one of the drug dealers had shown up at the home sometime on Sunday, April 2nd, after everyone was gone, and Andrew welcomed them into the home, hence the lack of any forced entry or signs of a break-in. Andrew was caught off guard and was overtaken by his assailant. He was tied to the chair where he was tortured into revealing where he hid his money, and after they got the money, Andrew was killed. The thing is, the Greenwich police have never revealed whether they found Andrew's stash of money inside or not. They also never found Andrew's BlackBerry phone. If Andrew's killing was not a suicide by Hitman scenario, then investigators are convinced it would have taken more than one person to have restrained Andrew in the chair with those flex cuffs. Some of the stab wounds that Andrew suffered were more superficial than others, lending to the idea that he had been tortured in order to get information out of him, like, for example, where he hid his money. It would take almost two years, but investigators were finally placed two people under arrest for Andrew's murder. After sifting through dozens of potential suspects and sorting through a variety of theories, the one person investigators were never able to clear was Andrew's trusted driver, Carlos Trujillo, who was, by the time he was taken into custody, 47 years old. He had always been near the top of the suspect list, but it was eventually Carlos's evolving stories regarding his movements the night of Andrew's death that were really his undoing. He was finally arrested in March of 2008, along with a cousin of his named Lenny Trujillo, who was only 21 years old at the time. Carlos was initially charged with conspiracy to commit murder, while Lenny was charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Later on, Carlos would also be charged with murder too. Because the story is running a little long, I'll give you the abbreviated version of it all. Lenny Trujillo would end up agreeing to a plea deal in 2009 that would see him convicted of manslaughter and conspiracy to commit murder in exchange for his testimony against Carlos and a 20-year jail sentence. He claimed that he was paid $11,000 plus a computer to help Carlos murder Andrew, but he made the claim that he didn't actually go through with the killing, that he took the money and never showed up, and he had no idea how the murder went down. As for Carlos, he decided to roll the dice and take his case to trial. And in March of 2011, Carlos was acquitted of murder and a mistrial was declared on the attempted murder charge. So in order to avoid going to trial again, he went ahead and accepted an Alford plea. This meant that Carlos could maintain that he was innocent but accept a guilty plea in the case. He was sentenced to six years in prison. Even though Lenny said that he wasn't there when the murder took place, Police are convinced that he was, because of the state of the crime scene, that it would have taken two people to pull off what was done to Andrew. Police didn't have much in the way of evidence linking either Carlos or Lenny to the crime, nor did they have much of a motive either. But investigators had gotten a break in the case when they discovered an overlooked piece of evidence. A search of Carlos's apartment after Andrew's murder turned up a credit card issued to a person named Amita Trujillo. In looking over the evidence, more than a year after Andrew's death, they saw the credit card and wondered who that person was. As it turned out, Aminta was a resident of Waterbury, Connecticut, and she was a half-sister of Lenny Trujillo. When she was brought in for questioning, she thought it was going to be related to her family's connection to the Colombian drug cartels. But when police started talking about a murder, she was the one who asked about it being the rich Jewish guy, which is Andrew. From there, she told investigators how Carlos had asked her half-brother, Lenny, to help him murder Andrew. Long story short, investigators believe that Andrew was attempting to launder money through Carlos and through his brother, George, while he was on house arrest in an attempt to hide some of his assets. They believe that this money was never returned to Andrew and he was killed over it. Investigators also believe that Carlos had long been involved with Andrew's schemes and his frauds and was afraid of getting in trouble because of the paper trail that led to him. Unfortunately, the case had become so complicated and convoluted that the prosecution, at some point, they kind of lost the jury. They just didn't get it. The prosecution was never able to tell the jury with any degree of certainty who did the actual killing of Andrew, and that there could have been a third person involved, and who would that have been? So in the end, there would be nobody officially convicted of Andrew's murder, But the Greenwich police believe that they did serve some measure of justice. And now, pivoting back to Nancy Kissel, serving a life sentence for murdering Robert over there in Hong Kong. In February of 2010, the highest court in Hong Kong overturned Nancy's murder conviction and ruled that she be tried again. The court found that Nancy was not questioned properly at trial and hearsay evidence was heard in court when it should not have been, It should have been objected to and thrown out. Nancy and her supporter, I guess, she has one at least, were glad that they were going to have a second go at it and try to prove that Robert's killing was justified. Nancy was retried in 2011 and once again she was convicted and again sentenced to life in prison. Since then, Nancy has lost all of her appeals for her sentence to be changed to a definitive term In other words, giving her a release date. And most recently, in September of 2020, Nancy lost her bid to be granted an early release so that she could take her case to the lower court of appeal and have her prison sentence reduced. So for now, Nancy Kissel stays put in a Hong Kong prison until she dies. And that, my dreamers, was a tale of the Kissel family curse. All right, we are finally finished with that case. It was long and complicated and had so many layers, but I found it to be pretty fascinating and I enjoyed going through that with you. I want to thank all of you for listening, for your patience. The last couple of weeks have been a little bit hard on me. I haven't been on social media very much, but I was working on this and I'm working on the Patreon series diligently. I'm trying to stay focused. I do hope you all have a wonderful week. It is Sunday, our fourth anniversary here at California Dreaming. I'm going to edit this and upload it so you can finally finish this out. I'm your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams.